0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Prodigal. The parable of the father and his two sons in Luke 15 graphically displays the gospel and human sin, the gracious heart of the father, the wandering heart of the younger son, and the judgmental heart of the older brother we going to be concluding our uh, little three-week mini-series here on the story of the prodigal from Luke chapter 15, uh, which, as I've stated, is really better referred to as the, the parable of the man who had two sons. Um, so we're going to be looking today at the elder brother's trouble. I'm again going to go ahead and read this story to us to take the time, and obviously we're going to be focusing on really the last third of the story so we'll be looking at Luke chapter 15 verses 1 to 3 and 11 to 32 you can follow along on the screen and again it's also there in the booklet so hear now the words of the living God now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered this man welcomes sinners and eats with them I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick! Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. A number of years ago, a movie that won a lot of awards named Amadeus came out. And it was the, the fictional uh, retelling of the life of Mozart kind of told through the eyes of another composer of that era named Salieri. And it was certainly fictionalized. But in the movie a very powerful portrayal is that Salieri wants to be a great composer. And even as a young child, he's crying out to God. He says, if you will give me gifts so that I can be a great composer and I will be remembered as the greatest composer of my age, I promise I will live obediently to you. And I will restrict myself. I will follow all of your rules. I will be a moral man if you will give me this gift. And Salieri grows up and he is a composer and he's doing well but he has heard of this young prodigy Mozart and he has heard Mozart's music and he is astounded at it and he can't wait to meet the great Mozart. And then in the first scene where he meets Mozart, he discovers in a crushing blow that Mozart is an immoral buffoon. He is crazy. The actor plays him had this laugh. I actually played a clip the other night and it drives Linda crazy every time we do it. She's like this is that guy that's going to laugh that way again because he comes off as just a buffoon and an idiot and he's completely immoral and yet he's got a far greater talent than Salieri. Salieri works in one scene to compose something for the king and he spends all this time and Mozart listens to it once and can immediately play it back and then immediately starts making improvements on it and it drives Salieri crazy and in the movie he says it was incomprehensible here I was denying all my natural lust in order to deserve God's gift, and there was Mozart indulging his in all directions, even though engaged to be married, and there was no rebuke at all. And so Salieri, in one of the central scenes in the movie, comes to a place, and he tells God, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. If this is the way you will do it, if you will dispense your gifts, To a buffoon like that, when I have worked and labored to deserve your gifts, then we're enemies, and I want nothing to do with you. Now, I bring this up because it's a great story that is built on the same interaction that's going on here in the parable of the man and the two sons, because one of them is very much like Mozart, and one of them is very much like uh, Salieri, and so what do we learn about the older brother in this parable? Is he lost too? And what is his real problem? Now, I want to begin by looking at the background again, because this is so important. This is such a familiar story, but most often when I've heard this story, the focus is all about the younger son and all the bad things he's done, and look how sinful he was. And if you're that kind of a person, you can come back too. That's kind of, except for that's not really the focus in this parable that's not what's really going on and we know because Luke gives us this introduction and notice in verses 1 to 3 we're told there are uh, two groups of people that are going on here there are tax collectors and sinners on one hand. These are the notorious people who are not living according to God's law, and on the other hand, there are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They are the very religious people. They are the religious leaders. They are the ones who have devoted themselves to understanding the Old Testament and trying to tell people how they should be living in accord with this. And notice, in the parable, there's a man and he's got two sons. And the two sons clearly correspond To these two groups. The young man, uh, the the younger son, is the tax collectors and sinners. And on the other hand, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law relate back to the elder brothers. And so this parable is meant to speak to these groups uh, of people. And we can't miss this because Luke is telling us how to read the parable, and he actually quite often does this. He uniquely among the gospel writers will tell us well this is why jesus told this story so we don't even have to ask well why was this there what is really the point jesus is responding to a situation around him and so the parable is ultimately about god's heart for the lost and remember there's two other parables that jesus tells on this occasion and they're about things that are lost and the joy that comes when they are sought out and found by the shepherd finding the sheep the woman finding the coins, and now the father receiving his son and ultimately, hopefully, receiving both sons back. And so the parable's not really about the external behavior of the younger son, which is usually how we try to talk about the parable and how we think about it. It's really about the father's heart. And if you really want to get down to which of the two sons it's most about, it's most about the older brother. It's mainly about him. Because Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to see something about who they are. And so this parable speaks to uh elder brothers and younger sons. And the problem is here because, see, the Pharisees were looking and they had a very clear idea of who the good guys and who the bad guys are. And so when Jesus starts this parable, they think they know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. The bad guy is the younger son. Now, this is important because what Jesus is doing is something I did with my kids and I now do with my grandkids. When they start watching a Disney cartoon or something, I'm always telling them that the good guy is actually the bad guy and the bad guy is actually the good guy. And, you know, I'll be like, hey, in Lion King, you know, I, I think Mufasa's the bad guy and Scar's the good guy. And, no, Papa, that's not the way it is. Because they very clearly want to know who's the good person, who's the bad person. And, and, you know, and I'll kid with them and say, well, What's the point if it's going to be the same way that it always happens in the movie? We don't need to watch it. It's going to be different this time, right? No, Papa, that's not what it is. He's the bad guy. He's going to get in trouble. Well, that's the way the Pharisees are approaching this parable, and they think they know. The bad guy is the younger son. The hero is the older brother, except for that's not true, as we come to see. And Jesus does this very often with the parables. So let's delve in and look at the elder brother's trouble. Now, the elder brother Notice immediately he's got suspicions. We, the first thing we really are told much about the older brother is he's, he's very suspicious about something that's going on. The younger son has come back and there's a the big party going. And we read in verses 25 to 27, when he's coming in from the field and he gets near the house and he hears music and dancing and there's a party going on, what would you normally think would happen if there was a party going on in your house? You'd go find out what's going on, right? You would go in there and you would would try to pay attention. And the elder brother, notice, he doesn't do that. He comes in and immediately he's suspicious. He's like, what in the world's going on? It sounds like there's a party going on in there. Why is there a party going on? He doesn't even know that his brother has come back, but he's already suspicious. And this is because very often elder brothers... Those are, I'm not speaking literally of like the. I'm an elder brother in my family. I'm speaking of those who follow this, this type. They, they're, they're, they walk the way the elder brother walks. Often those type of folks are suspicious of feasting and celebration and joy because for them, faithfulness and celebration are virtually mutually exclusive. If you're being faithful, you're not celebrating because if you're celebrating... You're not really doing what you ought to be doing. You're not out there working away and doing that. So notice he's suspicious right here from the beginning before it's even known what's going on. H.L. Mencken, who was a journalist up in Baltimore uh, in the early 1900s, made a quip about Puritanism, and it was not fair to the early Puritans, but it is fair to the spirit, the Puritanical spirit. And he said, here's what Puritanism is. It's the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. And, and we're out to stop it, because God's the cosmic fun police, and he's called us to be his deputies. And if you're celebrating and feasting, we got suspicion that something's not right here. Notice that's the elder brother. He doesn't come in. He doesn't find out what's going on. He's immediately like, why, why is there a party going on here? What's wrong with this? Now, it then gets even worse, because The elder brother, if we're sitting here and we're looking at that, you might say, well, you know, is he really that suspicious? Well, then notice what happens when he finds out what's going on. He's told, your younger brother's home, your father's throwing a party because he's so glad to have his son back. Notice the elder brother's reaction in verse 28. He becomes angry and he refuses to go in. He will not join the party. He is not excited that the lost son has come back and been found. He is not excited that the sinner has returned home. And notice this is exactly like the Pharisees. This is why Jesus is telling the story. He's saying, look, these tax collectors and sinners have been gone. They've come in and God's throwing a party. And you Pharisees and teachers of the law are standing outside the door, tapping your fists, and you're upset. You're not happy with what God's doing here. You will not join the party. And in fact, you're muttering and hurling accusations at me for throwing a party for them coming home, but that is exactly how elder brothers work. When confronted with the father's prodigal grace and joy, elder brothers refuse to join in, and in fact, oftentimes become angry. Do you, do you notice the the juxtaposition here? There's a party going on. They're not only suspicious of it, their reaction is the exact opposite of the father's. The father wants joy. The father wants feasting. The father wants celebration. Look what's happening. The elder brothers want none of it and in fact are even angry. And thirdly, we find out the elder brother is specifically angry at both the father and his younger brother. Notice in verse 29 and 30, it's so pathetic. The father goes out to plead with the older brother and understand in their culture, that's as radical and wrong as the way the father greeted the younger son. It would scandalize them. A father does not grow out to the child. The child is being disrespectful. Even if you don't agree with what the father's doing, the child should come in to the father. But the father doesn't. He's undignified. He goes outside. And then notice how the brother responds to him with these harsh words. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And he's got these harsh, angry words at his father as the father stands there. If you picture this, it would be a sad situation to watch a child dress down their parent in that way while others are watching he's rude and he hurls accusations at the father in essence what he's saying is you're being partisan notice verse 30 when this son of yours who has squandered your property he's wasted everything and now you're giving him more You're throwing a party when he comes home. He doesn't deserve this party. I'm the one. I've been doing all the stuff that ought to be done, and you're here giving it to this son of yours who has wasted all of your stuff. And notice his anger towards the younger brother. He won't even say, you're wasting this on my brother. I don't recognize him as my brother. He's this son of yours. He's no brother of mine. So he's angry at the brother for his actions he's angry at the brother because the brother is being received and he's angry with the father for not rejecting the brother you're not doing what you ought to do now this is because elder brother types think they are holier and wiser than the father now You need to be hearing as we're going along here because it's not people out there that would never darken the door of a church that are likely to be elder brother types. It's us. And elder brothers are tempted to think they're holier than God. And if you don't believe so, watch and see the rules they set up that are not rules God ever set up but we know. Is that not what the Pharisees did? Jesus constantly was in conflict with them, saying, the law doesn't say to do it. The law says to, to give tithes, but it told you you don't have to worry about mint and dill and cumin. God said, those are so small, don't worry about them. The Pharisees said, oh no, we'll worry about them because we're holier than God. We know more than God. And elder brother types are always that way. And then When God is not only judgmental in the way they are, but actually shows prodigal grace, Katie barred the door. They're angry about that. They're not happy at that response. Now, what we're going to do is take a look at why is the elder brother this way? We saw the, the younger son ran off and did the things he did because of things that were already happening in his heart. Okay? And the real focus is not so much his actions, but why he thought. Why did he think joy was found away from the Father in stuff, in a distant country? What, what did that for the younger son? Well, there's things going on in the elder brother's heart that are the same way. His trouble has deep roots. The first root is the elder brother is self-righteous. The elder brother is self-righteous. Notice in verses 29 and 30, in verse 29 particularly, particular, he says, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Really? Never? Never once. Have any of you ever met a child who never disobeyed orders? I mean, I, I, I had, with four kids, some of them are tend towards wanting to obey and some of them tend towards wanting to challenge authority. I won't say which is which, but if you know them, you know. They they have those tendencies. But even the ones who tend to want to obey still disobey. They still do. But this guy says, I have never once, not one time, you can't find anything in my record. Okay, see, that's a self-righteous spirit. The son thinks this. And but notice why he's doing that. What he can see is the sin of his younger brother. He's got no problem picking that out. He might think that he's faultless, but I know everything the younger brother's done. And in fact, even, you know, he's been off with prostitutes squandering. it. We don't know that from elsewhere in the story. That may be his mind kind of embellishing it. Elder brothers have no problem seeing everyone else's sin. They don't even have problems seeing father's sin in their eyes. The sin they can't see is the one staring back in the mirror because they're self-righteous. And see, the the problem with that is that self-righteous spirit underlies this other stuff because what he's really trying to do is control the Father. You owe me. I earned this. But friends, that's the exact opposite of the gospel. In the gospel, the sin I should see most clearly is my own. About 100 years ago, a paper in London was concerned with all the problems in the world and it wrote a question and it said, what is wrong with the world? What they're expecting back, of course, is everybody to write in and say, well, it's this group and it's that person and they do this. G.K. Chesterton, the famous Christian author, thinker, philosopher, and apologist wrote back and he said, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's what's wrong with the world. It's me. It's not them. I'm the problem. Because I know my own sin. That's a heart penetrated by the gospel. But a heart that minimizes its own sin while maximizing the sin of others, that's an elder brother. That's exactly what we see going on here. Elder brothers always think the real problem is that guy. The real problem is is that group i mean we might have our problems but we're not the real problem the real problem is over there self-righteous people always minimize their sin while maximizing the sin of others and so you can't help it if you're the elder brother you're going to come back and all he sees is everything the younger brother has done wrong and how can he be received second problem which flows out of that, is the elder brother is legalistic. He's legalistic. Notice his words. All these years I've been slaving for you. Notice he doesn't refer to his father as father. He won't refer to his brother as brother. His only words is slave. I have been a slave for you. And he's giving us a tip here. He views the father as a harsh taskmaster. And so the father wants me to think like a slave and act like a slave, and so that's exactly how I do it. Because legalism always values rules more than relationships. Always. And friends, that is a deadly trap. And I want to point out In our culture today, legalism is much more likely to be found within the church. I, I mean, what we got going on out in our culture right now is no rules at all, right? And it's easy in response to that to become the elder brother and to start valuing rules over relationships. So legalistic elder brother types always think the father is most pleased When the child is most restricted, what makes the father happy is by giving us a bunch of rules and things not to do. The more the elder brother restricts himself from joy and pleasure, and the more ceaselessly he labors, the happier the father will be. Does that sound like the father? See, it's not at all. I spent many years being this guy, so I understand this guy really well. I spent many years thinking the more spiritual I became, you would know by the longer list of things I no longer did. And I was more defined by what I was against than what I was for, by what I didn't do than by what I did do. And I thought spirituality was really restricting myself. And I actually remember when one of the ways that God spoke to me is through the novel 1984 that novel where that's exactly what they're doing. And the whole society in 1984 is everything is shrinking down. The language is shrinking. Uh, food has no flavor. It's purely for nutrition. Uh, husbands and wives are only to have sex to have the exact number of children that they need, and then they no longer do that. Bonds are being reduced between people. It is this restrictive world, and I felt God speak to me and say, do you realize I'm not big brother? I'm not that way. I give a world full of pleasure and joy. And you don't please me by not enjoying food that I've given for your pleasure. You don't please me by somehow thinking that your whole job is to be a slave and to completely restrict yourself. But see, for legalistic elder brothers, holiness and joy are antithetical. They're against me. You can tell how holy I am by how sour I look. Y'all probably never met anybody like this, right? See, this is the way that, that it gets to be. And true spirituality is found in slavish obedience to rules rather than a flourishing relationship with the Father. But see, that is a deadly, dehumanizing error. Now see, it's That doesn't mean be the younger son and run off and live in the pigsty. The pigsty is not what we were created for. But we're also not created to be in the field slaving away and having no relationship with the father. They're equal errors. Here's the reality. Both sons are lost. They both don't understand the father. And they really, they don't understand each other. And they're at war in the way they are. So notice what the the elder brother is saying here is, because I've kept the rules and because I've been like a slave and I've restricted myself, he's just like Salieri, you owe me. Friends, the second you and I think to God, you owe me, we are in bad place. God God does not owe us. God didn't owe Salieri anything. God's free to make whoever he wants the greatest composer of the age. That's that's his right. Kind of goes with being God. And God is free to distribute his gifts. We we don't make him owe us anything by keeping the rules. And God's not after us keeping the rules. He's after relationship. Relationship. So that's the second thing. But not only is the older brother self-righteous and legalistic, he's judgmental, which flows right out of it. If you are self-righteous, You will be legalistic, and if you're legalistic, you will be judgmental. And so notice what we read there in verse 30. When this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He sees that sin, and what does he want done with that sin? See, he wants a judge. He thinks the father ought to call the whole town together all right, not for a party, but for a public lashing of the younger son. That's what he deserves. He needs to be judged, and he needs to be judged openly. He needs to receive his due. There was actually an old Jewish saying from around the time of the New Testament that went like this. There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. That's the view of the older brother. You know what would make the father really happy? When he torches one of them. Do you remember when Jesus came in a village and the Samaritans didn't receive him? And what did a couple of the disciples helpfully say? Would you like us to call fire out of heaven and consume them? That was their response. And Jesus looked at them and was like, What, what are you talking about? I came here to save these people. You know, as if the disciples, of course, had it all together, right? But do you see how they, see, they, they, we've got it right. So these people didn't respond to you? Let's torch the place. That's elder brother. And it's a temptation. Never mind that the disciples themselves had been the outcast. They had been the younger sons, according to the Pharisees. But the second they kind of feel like they're on the inside now, what do I want to do? Start judging everybody else. That is a huge temptation for people like you and me. It just is, because we're trying to obey the Father. We want to do what's right. You are far more likely, the longer you walk with Christ, the longer you are part of a church, even this church, you're going to, your bigger temptation is going to be the older brother, not to be the younger son. That's, I don't have much temptation to run off and say, hey, the pigs die in a far country sounds like a great idea. That's not my problem. My problem is much more. I'm trying to keep the rules in God. Are you paying attention how well I'm trying to keep the rules here? That's much more the temptation. And so, judgmental people view the job of God and the universe to judge sin harshly. So, prodigal grace is a scandal. That is, that is the universe not being the way the universe ought to be. And by the way, who's running the universe? The father, and now we have a problem. Look, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. This is the root of anger. And so the result of all of this, notice the elder brother, he's an angry, alienated person. Because the elder brother understands everything except for himself, others, the world, and the father. Other than that, he's got it all right. He doesn't know himself. He thinks he's righteous when he's not. He doesn't understand the younger brother who's now repented. He doesn't understand how the world actually operates, and he, and he least of all understands his father. And so notice what happens is that he is angry. Where, where's the elder brother at the end of the parable? We're never told that he goes inside because Jesus is posing the question to the elder brother, will you come in and join the party? will you stop with your self-righteous, legalistic, judgmental ways and come join the party? Will you do that? The end result of elder brother approach to life is inevitably anger and fear rather than joy and love. Because their view of God is that he's an angry judge, not a gracious father. So they can't even recognize when God is giving grace to them because they think they, uh, they're owed it. But when they see it go into somebody they don't think is owed it, oh, I got a problem with that. And now I'm upset. And ultimately, and of course, let's be honest. See, I know enough Bible I can always justify when I'm not happy with the way God's running the earth. Right? This is, this is an occupational hazard, I'm telling y'all. I can actually quote it in the Greek to explain why the way I feel is right. Except for the Father's looking at me and saying, You're standing outside. Why don't you come inside? Why don't you come join the party? It's a real temptation and problem. And so when confronted with the prodigal grace of God, elder brother types become sullen and angry because to be blunt, they disapprove of the way God's running the universe. Be honest and ask yourself if you've ever felt that way. I mean, I sure have. I I all the time would like to get, if God would just listen to me and take my advice, this whole system would be running a lot better, right? It'd be a disaster for you all, but I would be very happy, okay? Now, how do we apply the word? What does this mean? It's a simple question for us. How do I think and act like the elder brother? And the first thing is, that that is an obvious thing is, if you think I'm not the elder brother in the parable, that might be a huge sign you might definitely be the elder brother. This is who the parable was particularly told to. And note, this is the people who could quote more Bible than you and I, and they were strictly trying to follow the rules. Okay, that, That was not their problem. So how do I think and act like him? Because this is the main problem Jesus is addressing in the parable. And it's the greater danger for serious Christians who want to understand and obey God's word. T- I am much more prone to this than I am to the other. Because I'm trying to understand it and I'm trying to apply the word of God to my life. I want to please the Father. So my danger can come that my confidence gets in my ability to obey rather than the prodigal grace of God. So and notice the people most likely to reject Jesus. We read this is not just in Luke 15 throughout the gospels, who is it that's piling around Jesus constantly? Tax collectors and sinners. And who is it that's got the biggest problem and ultimately crucifies the son of God? It's not the tax collectors and sinners. It's Pharisees, teachers of the law, the priests. They're the ones who do it. So here's the question. Do I struggle with a self-righteous, judgmental, legalistic attitude and approach to life? And I'm going to ask several sub-questions to help us answer that. First, and these will all be up on the screen. Do I primarily view God as a loving father or a stern judge? Now, God is the judge of all the earth. God is going to judge sin. But the question is, what's what's my go-to gut reaction? When I think God, do I primarily think about God as the judge or do I think of God as the gracious Father? Secondly, do I tend to primarily worry about and confront my own sin or that of others? In the blogosphere of my mind, Are my posts mainly about that guy, that group? They're the problem. They're destroying our country. Or is it mainly I look in every morning in the mirror and say, God be merciful to me, a sinner? Which is my primary approach. Thirdly, when others sin, especially against me, not just generically out there, but when they do something and it affects me, do I want to see them forgiven or judged? Now, I know we, again, don't literally usually come out and say it. What's going on in the recesses of my heart? Do I say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Do I say, Father, do not lay this sin to their account or do I say sick them, God they deserve it how could they do this to me which is my tendency how about fourth do I view true spirituality and holiness as restricting myself from joy and pleasure or liberation to be truly fully human and all God has made me to be. Which, do I, which way do I view you? We looked last week, remember, and some of this affected the younger son, because the younger son viewed the law of God as a restricting thing, but the scripture says the law of God is freedom. Which way do I tend to view it? Similar question do I view holiness and joy as antithetical or complementary? Do I really think that joy ought to be, you, you remember the fruit of the Spirit? What's, what, what are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy. Do, do I think that joy is, this is what the Holy Spirit produces, this is, what, this is what my life with God ought to produce in me, is joy. Or do I think that holiness is this I'm out here slaving for you, God. Last one. If Others were to poll your friends and family. Would you mainly be known what you are for or what you are against? Elder brothers are always known by what they are against. Okay, I remember years ago when there were questions regarding when, when the question of homosexual marriage first was cropping up in our culture. And there were a group of pastors that got together and we were talking about it. And one of the statements I made is, I don't want to just stand up and say, I'm against this. I did not believe it's biblical. I don't believe it's healthy and right and holy. I said, but I want to be known by what I'm for. What I'm for is a man and a woman where the two are becoming one and they are in a loving, lifelong bond. That's, I want to be for that. Not just against something else that was one of my few younger brother moments what am i known for if i went out and just asked people what name some things i'm for and things i'm against which things naturally flow off their tongue because if it's oh you're against that's a sign of elder brother spirit and i challenge you to think right now probably are evangelicals more broadly known in our culture for what we are for or what we are against so I'll let that rest and let you think through that. It's getting kind of quiet in here. Now, see, here's the challenge, and I want to be clear about this. We live in an amoral culture, we live in a culture that they clearly say there's nothing, the younger son was right, man, live life that way. And here's the temptation. I see that, and my immediate response is that i got to be the older brother because somebody's got to be the guard at the gate here. Somebody's got to be doing this. But, friends, you don't solve younger brother by being older brother. The prodigal grace of God that changed your heart and mine is the only thing that can convert a younger brother. So we do not solve this by becoming the older brother. That just makes the problem worse for us and for everybody else. Friends, if we pray and we believe and we trust that Romans 1.16 is true, that the gospel of God is the power of God for salvation, for Jews and Gentiles, those who seem to be close and those who seem far away, for younger sons and for older brothers, the gospel of God is powerful. And it can raise the dead. And it can shift and change. That is what our culture needs. And when the gospel of God hits a younger son, he'll get out of the pigsty. And he'll come home. And all of our moralizing and complaint is not going to change that. We just look like Pharisees when we do that. Oddly enough, because we're acting like Pharisees when we do that. Jesus scandalized because he trusted that the Word of God. Look, God can speak and nothing becomes universe. I don't think solving somebody's sin problem is going to be that hard a problem for him. He can speak and the Son of God can rise from the dead. I think he can solve the problem with the other people. Do we trust God enough? Because this is a hard thing. I I face this. This is not me saying, y'all got this problem. I've got this problem. I watch the amorality of our culture. I watch us encouraging people in destructive things. And I feel elder brother spirit rise up in me. But it won't work. It will not solve the problem. What needs to rise up is is the grace of God, the gospel of God. Speak and trust and believe that God will do what He says. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to come to the table. And I want to encourage us as we come with two pieces of good news. We come to this table because the Father is not the slave master the elder brother thought he was, He is gracious. And he is kind, and he is forgiving, and he invites us to his celebration feast. Friends, on that final day when we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb, none of us are going to say, here I am, I deserve to be here. None of us. We are all going to say, oh, Father, how did I get invited to this feast? It is good news that the Father is not a slave master, but a father. But here's an even better piece of news for you. We have an older brother, and he did not stand at the door and condemn you and me. In fact, he got up, he went to the far country, he got down in the pigsty and all the mess, and he delivered your wretched soul and mine and brought us back to the Father and said, Father, here he is. He has sinned. Forgive him. And if anything is owed put it to my account. That's a good older brother. And that's the one you have and I have in the Lord Jesus. And he does not say, how can you throw a feast? He says, here is the feast. I've paid for it all. Come inside. We're having a party. Man, that is good news for you and me. So I want to encourage you this morning. Elder brother, younger brother, whichever you find yourself being, I want to encourage you to come to the table and lay that down. Celebrate the prodigal grace of God. He has lavished it on you and me beyond anything we could ask or think or imagine. I remind us today as we come, you don't have to be a member of our church. You do have to believe the very thing that I'm talking about here, which is the gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is our hope. That is our salvation. If you believe that, then we, not being like old Rose, we say come to the feast. Let's celebrate together. If you're if you need gluten free, raise your hand in a moment and we will get that to you. But I want to encourage you, let's come to the table and let's celebrate. If, if you've been convicted this morning and you say, man, I feel like older brother, the good news is the father came outside and he comes to you now. Lay it down. Give it over to him and let's, if we can celebrate the lavish, prodigal grace of God, it can flow out of us to the other people around us. And younger sons and older brothers that you know can become washed over in the grace of God and become free. For what I received from the Lord I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed he took bread and when he'd given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is given for you eat this in remembrance of me and in the same way after supper he took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out so that all of your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, this morning, we come to this table. We come to celebrate your grace. I pray your Holy Spirit would reveal to us how great your grace mercy is. Come, Holy Spirit, feed and minister to the people of God. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, hold on to them and uh, pray to the Lord, confess any sin, and then we're going to come together to celebrate God's great grace. Father, today we come to this table Celebrating your boundless mercy and grace. Our sin is great, but your mercy is more. Father, some of us have been like the younger son, foolishly thinking joy was found apart from you. And others find ourselves like the elder brother, preferring rules over face-to-face relationship with you. But either way, we stand amazed that you have condescended to seek us out. So we freely confess that we come to this table by grace alone. And so we rejoice in the prodigal grace of God. Take and eat, my friends. Lord Jesus, you are the true and perfect elder brother who sought us to restore us to the Father. When we had wandered, you came to our distant country, humbling yourself that we might be restored, taking our sin to yourself and giving us your own righteousness. And rather than longing for us to be judged, you shed your blood that we might be forgiven and brought into the family of God. And as a sign of your joy, you prepared this table of celebration, and you have invited us to come. So today, we come. We take this cup in faith and joy, giving thanks for the prodigal grace that you have shown To us. Take and drink. Spirit of the living God, you are the one who convicted us of sin, righteousness, and judgment that we might return to the Father. Come now and be the spirit of joy and freedom that we might live in the glorious liberty of the children of God. Seal to our hearts and minds this vision of the prodigal, vast, wild grace of God, that it might fuel our faith, transform our minds, and shape our hearts. May we live in and through the grace of God, and may we share it with everyone we can. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. And God's people say, Amen. Let's stand together for a word of benediction. I pray you receive God's grace, presence, and blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you. Peace through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.